The NFX Podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating or review and by sharing with friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos by following us on Twitter at NFX and visiting NFX.com. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the NFX podcast. And for the regular listeners who hear us talking mostly about software companies, today we're going to be talking about a synthetic biology company. In fact, Omri Drory, our new partner, is going to be talking with the CEO, Asaf Ziran of C2I, about oncology diagnostics that's done with software, done using signal processing. And so you might be wondering, why is NFX investing in synthetic biology and tech bio? Well, it's because we always have been, number one. One of our second investment was actually in Mammoth Biosciences, which is itself a synthetic and tech bio company, but we're doubling down on it because you might say that bio is going to eat software, but it might be more accurate to say that bio is becoming software. And increasingly, these companies are in this space are becoming more and more software. And C2I is a poster child for this evolution that we're seeing from wet bio to sort of software bio. And Omri himself is a person who has started a software company focused on bio. So he has in his mind both the understanding of how software works and how uh, being a PhD in bio, how bio works. So, so glad that uh, we're here to talk today, Omri, and then you'll be talking with us off. We launched NFX Bio about five months ago. You're leading it. What's the big idea? Why is computational biology, what we call tech bio, why is that so important? First of all, think about the problem that we are solving. You know, we're curing people with therapeutics and diagnostic. We're feeding people with, you know, ag and food. We help the future of mankind by working on renewable chemicals, renewable energy. First of all, it's important, right? The problems are important. It's not just important problems, it's the biggest markets. And it's not just the biggest markets, it's a confluence of fast-moving technologies that are happening right now. We're talking about biologies getting digitized. We're talking about DNA synthesis. We're talking about DNA sequencing and sensors, turning biological data from analog to digital and back. And then combining digital biology with the advancement in computation and machine learning that can really help us make sense of the data. And C2I is exactly, that's what they're doing, using machine learning on sequence data to figure out, in this case, about the cancer patterns. But the third thing is we're moving from a world where people are pipetting in the lab where it's a very low throughput, error-prone human labor to high throughput automation at scale. And all those, those things are just enabling new kinds of company to emerge, tackling these huge markets and huge problems with, you know, the new science of bioengineering, computational biology, static biology, or what we call tech bio. Right. And so people in many industries are going to realize over the next few years how this tech bio computational biology is going to end up affecting their business, the materials, oil, the energy, ag, everything is going to be touched by bio and through computational biology. Yes, because, you know, biology is the most advanced technology on Earth. Sometimes it feels like an alien spaceship that just crash landed on Earth and we're trying to, you know, back engineer all this crazy technology. That's what biology seemed to me. It's this nanotechnology that works. You know, when I look at, uh, you know, at just uh, plants, you know, walking around, you look at the living things around you. It's magical. I wish my computer could eat and reproduce and create small laptops. You know, it doesn't work this way, but biology can do it. You know, our kids can do it. Everything we care about is biology. Again, the most advanced technology on earth trying to solve the biggest problem the biggest markets. And so 17 years ago, a little company called Facebook was a toy. And 17 years later, it's one of the more powerful companies in the world. Same thing with Google, same thing with Amazon. 
how powerful will be the leading tech bio companies in 20 years? I think you can already see that. You know, imagine our life in the pandemic if we didn't have Moderna, if we didn't have, you know, Pfizer and the new technologies of uh, digital biology, in that case, messenger RNA, which is just digital biology to develop vaccines so quickly, you know. So we see the impact right now. And I think the impact is just growing. We see companies like Ginkgo Biowork going public for $15 billion. We see uh, cell therapy companies curing cancer with modified T cells that was engineered just like just like computer code, you wrote code. And with companies like Mammoth Bioscience developing new and smaller genome editing tool, you know, you can take this code, package it in viruses. It's like science fiction, inject it into cells, modify them, recode them, and, you know, tell them to go after cancer. So we see science fiction happening today in this intersection of biology and technology. And, you know, many of these companies, I believe, would be huge, you know, just because they're solving such big problems. And they'll be touching so many different industries and so many different lives. So, I mean, that's why NFX takes this space so seriously is it's confluence of biotech that is changing as well as software tech, which is changing and coming together. And then it touches everything. So Omri, what makes it so hard for tech bio founders? You're supporting a number of them at this point. Well, you need to realize most of our founders came from academia. They are the brilliant scientists that developed the technology. And now they are the people who care the most and want to see the impact of the technology. While they care the most and understand everything they need to understand about the science, most of the time they don't know how to manage because in academia, you don't really have to manage people. They don't think about the business, how to make a business out of it, how to make money, because we all care about the impact, but you cannot create an impact if you're not a huge company that sells and you know that knows how to sell to customers. And the business strategy, are you the platform or are you the product? Do you want to develop products all the way, get FDA approval, go all the way to the clinic or do you want to support many, many different partners in a more platform playbook? Many, many different questions that we as scientists that started our own companies, scaled them all the way to huge companies in the case of Twist Bioscience, almost $10 billion companies and now being investors, we feel that we can help them with. So we've got their back. We definitely got their back. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you need to learn as you move from being a scientist to a scientist founder. And you've done that yourself successfully, as has everybody else on the team, and helping them navigate all these different aspects of the business they have to build around the technology. There's nobody better than you to do that. So good work on that. So before we dive into that conversation with Asaf, Amri, I just want to chat with you a little bit. I mean, when did you learn about C2I and how did you meet Asaf and the team? Yeah, it's great to be here. So I learned about the company via a very warm introduction from founders of another tech bio company out of Israel. So I met Asaf, uh, I flew him over here from New York to uh, Palo Alto back in the summer of 2019. And what are they doing? Explain what C2I is doing so that we can have that succinctly. So what C2I is doing is liquid biopsy for cancer monitoring. So if you have cancer, you can send them your biopsy and they can figure out the fingerprint of your cancer by simple whole genome sequencing of your cancer sample. And by doing that, they can find the cancer in your blood. And it's very helpful during your patient journey to see if the drugs you're taking actually work or not. So in the future, we believe every cancer patient will send blood tests, every cancer patient will have his blood uh, sequenced every few weeks, sent to the cloud, and every cancer patient will get his C2 number back. Do you have cancer? And how much cancer do you have? Is it going up or is it going down? And the way this is done is with a very small amount of blood and with a whole lot of computational power. Is that right, Omri? 
Exactly. The biology is actually pretty simple. They are sequencing cell-free DNA, but they are doing whole genome sequencing, very simple whole genome sequencing. They take that data to the cloud and they give you your C2 number back. Got it. And how is this going to end up changing the world, Amri? Look, I had uh, family members that suffered through cancer, and I know how terrible the patient journey is. You get uh, horrible drugs that has a lot of side effects, and sometimes they don't, they don't work. And it takes three, four months to even figure out that they don't work. You have to go through radiation, through CT scans, if you actually can see the tumor. And in early stage, in stage one or two, if you had just one tumor and they cut it out. Sometimes you don't know that you have any residual disease left and 50% of the people who you cut the tumor, you get the recurrence. And wouldn't it be great if those patients will know very quickly, does the drug work? Am I going the right direction? Or should I not suffer through the side effects and take a different drug? You know, should I take chemo after the surgery after they cut away the tumor because I have a high chance of recurrence because C2I, the C2 score showed two weeks after the surgery that I have residual disease. This will affect patient life. This will help cure many people. Got it. So it'll help people get off the wrong drugs onto the right drugs. It'll help people shorten the amount of time they have to be on these drugs if they can prove that it's working. And it's going to make people's lives during their cancer treatment much better. And even before that, it will help pharma companies develop better drugs because they can get signals way faster which part of the population are affected by which drugs. Got it. And so describe how this fits into the NFX bio investment thesis. So in NFX bio, we like to invest in the bio platforms. So technological platforms that combine biology and technology that enable you to create many different products, therapeutics, diagnostic, ag, material, energy, whatever it is, as long as it's biology and technology. In this case, it's an obvious platform. The platform is cancer agnostic. They can detect any cancer of any patient all over the world. It really is revolutionary. And when you say that he was in the defense forces working on similar problems, what do you mean by similar problems? It was a similar mathematical challenge of signal processing for his software to scan the sky and track down signatures of missiles. So the insight here is pretty interesting. The insight for this project came from trying to find very small signals of stealth aircraft and missiles in a very noisy radar data, especially the insight of how to find the answer out of a lot of very small noisy features. And that's what they are doing here. Instead of uh, the competitors that are looking for five, six, seven, ten different cancer driver genes, they are looking for 50,000, 100,000 different unique global features in the genome of the cancer cells to find it in a very specific and sensitive way in the blood. Okay, so let's jump in and hear the conversation between Omri and Asaf Ziran, the CEO and founder of C2I. Welcome everyone to the NFX podcast. It really is my pleasure to welcome Asaf Zviran, the CEO of C2I Genomics, the company I have been working with for the last, wow, two years almost. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, definitely exciting. And, you know, we started investing in you through the pre-seed. We did the first check. I actually remember flying you over to Menlo Park, sitting in a coffee shop and trying to figure out, you know, what it is that you're doing. And it's been such an amazing ride. So we did the pre-seed, NFX, Bio, Colette, the A round. And just recently you closed an amazing $100 million B round. Congratulations. Yeah, 
Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been an amazing ride. So again, as you know, it took us some time basically to spin off the company and to get things going. But once the team was there and the company was incorporated, it was a rocket ship. So basically, we had the pre- we had the seed round. Ten months afterward, we had the Series A. Ten months afterwards, we had the Series B. And I think we had like 10x multiplication in every of these, these rounds. So really like a nice ride until now. Yeah, an amazing ride. And the most important part, it's not the ride, but the impact of what you are doing. Can you explain what is it? and what's your product and your main goals? Yeah, so Citra uh, Genomics developed a system that can uh, detect and actually monitor cancer response to treatment in real time using regular blood samples and allow and help the clinician to make more personalized and optimized treatment decisions. One analogy that I would give to that, and actually this analogy have a very nice intuition to reality to the background of the founders, is we can look on Citra Genomics as basically the iron dome for cancer. So iron dome in the context of the recent Uh, Israeli events. So basically think about this intensive attack if someone needs to basically react to that manually, like basically detect uh, the threats, monitor the threats and do the right intervention to save lives. So actually cancer is very similar. So cancer is dynamic, it's evolving, it's basically reacting to what we are doing. And in order to basically do the right intervention and to combat with something like this, we need real-time information to track the evolution and basically to do the right intervention. So this is a very personal story for you and your family, right? You're a cancer survivor. You've been through it. My dad passed last year from cancer. So we know the patient journey and how horrible it is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And that's, again, that's what actually I like in the Iron Dome analogy, because that's actually really connect to my personal, personal story and a lot to the way that our team is structured and the company is structured. So my background actually started very far from biology and cancer. So basically electrical engineering, physics, second degree in applied mathematics, working for almost 10 years in the defense sector. So developing basically defense systems, anti-missile defense systems, decision support for the Israeli Navy and then other startups. And basically at some point after doing a lot of work on this kind of system, systems in the defense sector, I was diagnosed in cancer, with cancer, and actually we had a crazy period of a few years that after I was diagnosed, also my father and both of my wife's parents. So basically, in a few years, I had a very intensive oncology training from the patient side. Basically, most of my time was talking with oncologists on multiple different cancer types in parallel and trying to understand how the clinical decisions are made and how they are monitored, how they are making sure that it's working. And like, I learned that basically the simplest question or the hardest, like basically my father basically suffered from very severe side effects and he kept asking me, is it working? Is it make sense to continue? Should I move forward or should I quit or so on? And basically you are coming back to the clinician or the physician and they are saying, okay, let's wait another three months, do another CAT scan. And then it's maybe not conclusive. Let's wait another three months and so on. And you understand that basically the main problem in this system is that you don't have any data. You are trying something, maybe it will work, maybe it's not. This creates both a lot of burden on the system and a lot of wasted cost, but also a lot of uncertainty and really uh, basically complicate the patient journey. So basically my vision and direction that I chose was how can we take these methodologies that we developed for the defense system and apply them to cancer? And actually, interestingly, in the name of the company, it's really connected to this vision. So basically, C2I, it's an acronym for a command control intelligence, which is basically the paradigm that advanced military are using to monitor the scenario, integrate information, and make 
data-driven decision. And this is actually what we wanted to bring to Encore. Amazing. And you talked about liquid biopsy. And when people think about liquid biopsy, they think about scanning the population for early stages of cancer. But that's not what you are doing. You're actually getting a sample of the biopsy of the cancer. You use it to detect a fingerprint of that cancer that you can find in a very sensitive and specific manner in blood. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, again, I will give a bit of about like more generalized perspective on liquid biopsy. Basically, again, doing some analogy, think about recent cars are basically when you're taking them to the garage to do basically to check, to examine like if there is any problem. Like uh, previously, they needed to check every instrument separately and to check if there is any malfunction in your car. Currently, now you have the car computer that basically integrate everything. They just need to plug in, look on the board and see, okay, I can see that you have some problem in your starter and so on. We need to change it. I think in some sense, in a few years, Equibox is going to be that car computer. So every tissue damage, any problem that you have in your body, basically get into your bloodstream. So any tissue that basically you have some kind of like acute inflammation, damage, or even for diabetes, for autoimmunity, for cancer, for a really a diverse disease, the DNA that basically is showing this damage is going into the bloodstream and you can monitor it and see what happens. So basically, I think that this is something that is going to really explode in the next couple of years. We are currently focusing on specific application for cancer. And again, basically, one of the features of cancer is like is the eye metabolism. So basically, cells continuously being born and die with very high rate, much higher than any healthy tissue. So basically, all of the time, cancer cells are dying, it's called apoptosis, and shedding DNA into the blood. So basically, just looking on the blood, you can see what happens. You can see if the tissue is growing, you can see basically what are the biomarkers, what are the mutations, you can monitor everything from the blood. The only challenge was sensitivity. So liquid biopsy for cancer is not a new concept. Basically, a foundation, Garden Health, started this concept, I think, more than 10 years ago, or even like in the research side, maybe 20 years ago. But basically, the first application were for metastatic patients where the tumor DNA presence in the blood was so high that basically the signal to noise was enough to detect. Now with the recent uh, advancement in liquid biopsy, the new frontiers are cancer screening and MRD, which both of them require very, very high sensitivities that the previous legacy methodologies could not go into that kind of a performance. If you're thinking about the treatment monitoring, it's called the residual disease monitoring or minimal residual disease, MRD. Basically, think about the problem of a stage two cancer patient, localized disease, is going for surgery. The surgeon is saying, I removed everything. There is nothing there. You're doing imaging. Radiologist is saying there is nothing there. And now you need to detect, and we know that basically in different cancer types, something between 20 to even 50% of these patients have recurrence. So obviously there is cancer there. We just can detect it. And now can we actually detect something where there is no tumor? So basically it's even other than screening. Like actually you remove the local tumor. There is nothing there. There is like some micrometastatic sites in location in spread around the body, and you need to detect it from the blood. And basically C2I came up with a really novel methodology really inspired from this radar defense systems, very advanced signal processing and machine learning, AI, that really can integrate 
tens of thousands of features of the cancer and allow superior sensitivity that basically none of the legacy method could achieve before. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think in the future, every cancer patient around the world will send blood tests to C2I and get his C2 number. So you'll know, do I have cancer and does the treatment work? That's amazing. And we at NFX like to invest in what we call tech bio, this combination of biology and technology, and especially in platform companies like C2I, where you can create many different products, not just one, where it, you know, it can be many different therapeutics, diagnostic, ag, materials, renewable chemicals, etc. So your funding team, Boris and Ezra, is really great. And we see those kind of funding teams over and over again. You have the business guy, you have the biology guy, you that really understand and care a lot about, the, in this case, cancer. And Boris, the computer guy that help you with uh, the computer platform and the coding and everything else. But it's not just them. You now have almost 40 different employees, very diverse background. You need people in biology, you need people in software, you need people in business. How do you identify talent? How do you manage such a diverse talent? So first of all, the background of the founders and the initial team was diverse. So also our network was diverse and allow us. And still, even now that we are growing very quickly and recruiting very intensively, even now a lot of the recruitment is done organically. So basically people that we know, we appreciate, we know their expertise and we know that they are the right fit personally to the team. So getting the right people inside, but also recruiting like non-organically and by basically releasing to the right recruiters and job description and so on. But again, also we divided the company. So in Israel specifically, we built a very strong team for the product and software engineering. I didn't say that, but basically there are two very important foundations to the C2I product. One is the very efficient, sensitive, and accurate, basically liquid biopsy detection that we are doing. But the second is basically the inspiration to allow everyone in the world to use this technology. And basically we structure the company as a software and data company and build up a software platform, cloud-based platform that can basically integrate with any clear lab around the world and allowing them to basically provide to their patient environment and with all of the required regulatory reimbursement, basically to provide a situation service, the cancer detection, monitoring, clinical decision-making and so on. So we invested a lot like very early in the company on building up the right software platform, very robust cloud-based platform, software engineering, compliance, we invest in a year, we had a platform that is GDPR and IPA compliant that was integrated in multiple sites in the US, in Europe, in Singapore, in Israel, and so on, and really expanding quick. So to allow that, basically, we need a diverse team. We build up a very strong team for the cloud computing, software engineering, machine learning, AI, in parallel to the team that is more oriented for the bioinformatic, biology, cancer, and business development. So you just told us about your office in Israel. So you have a headquarters in New York. You have a clear lab in Boston. You have software engineering in Israel. So you've been doing distributed management before it was cool uh, because of COVID. So how's that process? How is it to hire in three different places? How it is to manage in three different places? Like what makes each place, you know, perfect for what you're trying to achieve there? So first of all, there are two aspects. Let's say what was the strength before the pandemic and after the pandemic. So before the pandemic, I think the strength in the team that allowed us to operate both in the US and Israel, is that basically in the founding team, I was based in New York, Boris was based in Israel, and we know each other for 20 years. So basically we can 
understand each other, coordinate and plan together without any friction. So basically, and again, having someone that you can trust completely, that you know that is going to get a job done. So basically that allows you to really work in a distributed manner because I know that if we decide to do something, it's going to get done. I don't need to be there. Like it's going to get that. So basically that thread in the founding team already like build up the right foundation to function very effectively. And interestingly, so a comment that I received from Boris after the COVID pandemic started. So basically before the COVID pandemic, what happened is that the New York team talked between each other, the Israel team talked between each other. And once a couple of days, or once a week, they talked together. He told me it was very hard for him to make sure that actually the guys in New York is doing the right job because they are keep like working with each other. Once we moved virtually, basically the discussions inside New York or inside Israel or between New York and Israel became the same. Basically, the interaction between Israel and the U.S. team became a more frequent, more fluid. So all of these barriers fall. And basically, from that point, it didn't really matter where the member, where the employee is. So actually, it was for us a good experience and a very educating experience. I think it actually improved the performance and the productivity of the company. And actually, I can tell you that now that we are recruiting very extensively, we don't care even where the employee lives. So basically, now we are recruiting wherever you are in the U.S., in Israel. We're actually thinking about recruiting in Europe. Wherever you are, if you have the right talent and the right personality, we want you in the company. Amazing. It's good to see that uh, you know, there's some silver lining with all the horrible years we went through COVID. And you also had to experience fundraising during COVID that <laughs> I bet added stress to the journey. But I want to circle back to the business side. I think one thing people say about scientific founders is... Well, you know, they care about the technology more than anybody else. They invented it. They really understand it, but they don't really get, you know, management. They don't really understand business side. So how did you figure out, like, what's the business strategy of the company? Yeah, let's start with that the motivation that drove me into the field and to start the company wasn't just like basically the innovation research, the excitement of how cool is what we are doing. Again, because I came from the patient side, in one sense, first of all, I really understood what the patient and the clinician need. So it was very application-oriented. And since basically even from the academy research and more during the company initial years, basically it was all about how can we get the right clinical application quickly to the patient. So it's very cool that we are more sensitive. It's very cool that we are doing AI. It's very cool that we are monitoring cancer evolution over time. But how can we get the right clinical application and get it into the clinic quickly to allow the patient to enjoy. That was my mindset. And that's basically drove a lot of the focus of the company. And again, one of the challenges of like working in something that is a platform, and this is a lot of the, basically what NFX is trying to drive platform companies, the challenge in a platform company that it's like very easy to get lost in all of the opportunity. For us, basically a C2I technology can be used for any solid cancer at any point in the treatment. So how can you choose? Where is the right point? And really, so basically we started with basically talking extensively with clinicians about what is the unmet need, what should we do, what is the right clinical design, and let's do it together and prove that it's working and how to move it to the clinic. And that's even like basically today, a previous discussion that I had in Denmark is, okay, so we finished the clinical proof of concept. We want to get it to the clinic. Let's build a strategy together. How we are basically translating that now to something that basically the molecular medicine lab of Denmark can actually use as a diagnostic test. And we are super focused about that and moving forward. And again, I'm coming from the position of basically, I don't know anything. 
you are the key opinion leader. Tell me what you need, then I will get it done because I want to make sure that basically it will go to the right patients. The second thing is, again, that's like actually part of uh, how we are building the team and the recruitment. Basically, I see my job as a CEO on basically two main things, build up the right strategy and inspire the right people to do it. So not necessarily, basically, I have the experience of how to build efficient marketing, how to build efficient clinical design, how to build efficient even cloud-based product. But basically, focusing on building up the right strategy and, again, the right clinical usage and direction and to inspire people. So that's actually when I went into this field, I came from basically a personal family problem and I wanted to inspire people to solve it. So how can we inspire? And inspire, basically, I mean employees, partners, investors, regardless, all of them need to be inspired to move the needle and start to do more. Yeah, and uh, you know, I remember those discussions. Again, in NFX, we invest in platform technologies that, as you said, have many different products or, and, you, and you can drown in opportunity. And prioritization, what do you start? What do you do first? I vividly remember being in a meeting with all of you in New York and you brought one of the key opinion leader, a medical doctor, and he said like, yeah, we can use this technology on stage four, but you know what? In stage four, it's too late. The medical need is where we can save life is stage one and stage two, early stage, because this is where your technology can really shine. So that's been an amazing process to see. So in general, you have two business models, if we can say that. An early business model, which is, hey, I can work with pharma, I can help them because we have this uh, very quick, very sensitive uh, signal, we can help them develop drugs or bring drugs to the earlier settings of cancer. And we don't need FDA approval for that. We just need to show that our data is great. And then we can also get FDA approval. And then everywhere around the world, cancer doctors can send samples to a local clinic or even to the hospital. They just do a simple 20X whole genome sequencing, send it to the cloud, to your cloud, to your solution and get the C2 number back and just pay as even a SaaS service, I guess. Basically, I think the right analogy to what we are doing is how imaging is being used for cancer. So basically, both in the clinic and in pharma clinical trials, imaging is like extensively being used in order to get insights about what happened. We can do it more sensitively and earlier. So basically, and you mentioned the early stage and really, so that's like a good and basically the company is currently, although that we can walk across the entire patient journey, we are focusing on early stage because of two reasons. One, clinical decision in early stage don't have any good biomarkers. So it's all pathology, staging, stage one, stage two, stage three, which is not necessarily efficient. It's a statistical question. And basically what happened is at the end, many patients, hundreds of thousands of patients, sometimes do not receive the treatment that they need. And basically the cancer is evolving, becoming metastatic cancer, and basically we come into a place that Q is not an option. Basically, it's just prolonging life. But on the other hand, many hundreds of thousands of patients get treatment that they don't need, which is another like huge problem. If you think about like patients that are going, and currently one of the interesting things that we're working on for rectal and bladder cancer, are basically patients that are going for surgery. So the way that usually the treatment is going is that they are going for neoadjuvant chemo radiation, chemotherapy radiation. Some of them have perfect response, but we don't know which patient have perfect response or not. Then they are going for surgery. And then basically from reviewing the sample, we know that 30% of the patient actually went for surgery without any need. And basically their bladder and rectum is removed 
they are going to have this ability and reduce quality of life for the rest of their lives. So basically, again, how can we improve these decisions and make them personal and data-driven and really improve both the patient that needs more treatment and also patients that, that we can remove treatment. And again, both of these problems of like guiding treatment are problems that are associated with clinical trials and improving enrollment of clinical trials, monitoring early endpoints is something that we are extensively working with multiple collaborators and obviously in the clinic. And above all of that, how can we allow patients in Europe, India, Israel, Singapore, Australia, China, all of them to have the accessibility and the ability to use the technology. Again, it's so amazing and it's just uh, just so great to think about the impact that this technology will have with so many cancer patients in the future. But I want to take you back. So three years ago, you were a postdoc, you care about this subject, you went back to academia, you studied about it, you were in the lab, you had like signals that what you're working on can be a company and you can start a company. What would be your like super tactical suggestions to people like you, you know, professors, postdocs, PhD students, they have something in the lab, they're very passionate about it, it seemed to be working. When is the right time to start a company? What's the first step in their transition from academia to industry? Yeah, I think one of the critical steps is working with someone that did it before. Because again, there are many steps of beside minimal viable product, minimal viable team, how to get the technology out of the academy, how to start the company, what is the right team, how to get the right messaging and networking. And basically the, the way that we are doing the messaging in the academy and in the industry is very different. It's very different way of basically explaining the problem, explaining the solution and the potential. From my perspective, working with someone that have done that before that can guide you, I think it's critical. It was critical for me. And again, also now, even though that I'm super busy, I'm trying to help when I can and basically to help other new entrepreneurs, scientific founders that want to start a company, because I think, again, this is a critical step. If we can help, we need to do it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really important. So you talked about your own transition from academia, but what would you say uh, are the things that translate really well moving from academia to a CEO or to an operational role in a startup. What translates well and where did you think, you know, your training academia was lacking for the startup life and where did you need to learn more and get more help? So I think, first of all, my background is not necessarily conventional, like for the academy, postdoc, or, uh, and so on, because I already had many years of, like, uh, basically industry, R&D, team management, project management, and so on. And again, so I think the leading technology development, innovation, even like competitive landscape research are things that are really basically PhDs and postdocs have very good background and setting how to do. Because again, what you're doing in research is all the time trying to understand what the others are doing, reading all of the articles, everything that is being done, where they are, how can I be differential and how can I show the next big thing? Because nature and cell will never publish something that was already shown by others. So basically the framework of how can we be innovative, be differential, and be and have a competitive advantage is a framework that's really educated in the academy. I'm not sure regarding like basically management and like really managing product development, team management, and so on. If that's something that has like good training and education in the academy, again, I had a bit more background like in previous industry positions. And definitely I found it basically for me, the networking and messaging were critical pieces. And again, actually, so both in my industry experience was defense and army. So actually we were trained not to talk, not to say anything. So like both defense sector and the academy was very different mindset 
for the messaging that I needed as basically a CEO and company founder. So I think that was one of the things that took me some time out to get the right messaging, to be very concise, to express the potential, to inspire, convince, and so on, and also get the right network in order to really scale it. Yeah, what I like to say to postdoc and PhD students that want to start a company, especially with, you know, that did their research in biology, what I like to say that translates really well is, first of all, you learn how to learn. You always have to learn about how to use new experiments, uh, new machine, etc. The second thing is you learn how to design a scientific experiment and how to learn from it. And, you know, startup life is a lot of smaller scientific experiment. And third, and most importantly, is you have grit. Because as you know, in academia, in research life, you walk, you work and you get nothing and then you have to pick yourself up go back to the lab and try again 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 it's extremely hard but i know that if you finish your phd and your postdoc you have the grit and optimism to be a startup ceo so that translates really well so you mentioned the c2i is this rocket ship you know raising money very quickly at higher valuation doing amazingly in the last two years but how do you measure traction i think in software companies in SaaS company it's very obvious you know you have arrs you have different kpis that everybody knows about how do you show traction in this space yeah so first of all Clinical development. So the traction in our space is mainly clinical development and showing the scale of the clinical key opinion leaders that are working, the network of clinical key opinion leaders that are working with you, the scale of the experiment and clinical evidence. And again, I think one of the nice, like positive signals that we have been showing is that every collaborator that started a pilot study with us continued to the next and next and next and bigger pivotal study. So basically, till now, we are very fortunate that basically all of our branded studies showed amazing results, amazing promise, and we are moving forward with the same QOL to the bigger and bigger clinical study is moving to prospective, to interventional, and basically getting the right clinical evidence. So again, basically for a diagnostic clinical product and also from the pharma perspective, if the clinical key opinion leaders are convinced that you are doing something that will give benefit and the performance is differentiated and they are investing their time and their resource on you, probably you have something in your hand. And again, one of the things, so in liquid biopsy, I think someone termed the notion liquid gold a few years ago, because now like the demand for liquid biopsy blood samples is so high because of the competition between the companies. Because again, blood samples are limited. Like every tube of blood would be used for one experiment because it's so a low amount of material. So blood samples are very limited resources. The institution that we are working with, this is their most precious resource. So these biobanks, so these prospective collections are the most precious resource. And if they choose to work with us and to spend this resource on C2I, that already show that probably we are in the right direction and we are doing something You're listening to the NFX Podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, feel free to rate and review our channel and share this conversation with someone you think would benefit from these insights. Follow us on social, at NFX, and visit nfx.com for more content. And now, back to the show. So you just raised massive $100 million B-round recently. What did you identify that requires so much capital so quickly because your last round was you know 10x of that less than a year ago yeah. i think there are two successful trends that we had after our series a that both motivates the series b and 
show that it's necessary to go to this like large uh, series B. So the two trends are one, the clinical evidence that we got from pilot study. And the second is the very quick scale up of our clinical network that is like really exploding even these days, especially after the series B. So we got in the clinical evidence. And again, we were like super focused on execution, moving quickly in the eight, 10 months after the series A, basically we finalized four different blinded clinical trials in different locations around the world. So basically two in Denmark, one in Singapore, another one in the US in NYU. And actually now we finalized the fifth one that included multiple different cancer types, including colorectal and lung and bladder and lung now glioblastoma. All of these studies showed a great promise. All of these studies really established that we have a differential performance better than anything else currently, not only in the market, but better than anything else that is currently in development, as far as we know by public data. And basically show that we have something here that we need to drive forward very quickly. And again, we need to move, and that means to move to larger prospective clinical trials, interventional trials, hundreds of patients, a lot of money. So that's one thing. The second thing is that actually both because of like the strong clinical evidence and also the traction that we received all over the world. So basically multiple locations in Europe, other locations that currently in the Middle East, in India, in Singapore and other locations, all of them wants to get access to the technology, wants to be able to bring it to their own diagnostic centers and clinical centers and so on. And now we are moving. So basically, we understood that the company is going to move very quickly to the commercial side. So basically, beside these large clinical trials, we need to do a strong effort in the regulatory perspective, reimbursement, launch of the product in multiple locations globally in parallel. So basically, US, Europe, Asia, Middle East, and so on, all of these product launch will require a money. So let's talk about fundraising, right? Obviously, you're good at it <laughs> because you did it again and again. What do you think are the non-obvious lessons you learned about fundraising, especially as a Santi CEO? What's the insight that people never get a chance to hear? Yeah. So again, I think there are two aspects. At the end, investors are people like everyone else. So you need to inspire them. Like basically they need to understand that there is something huge here with huge market, huge potential, huge differential advantage and so on. But then also there is like the fear of missing out. And basically you know it and you were very helpful in that. So basically creating the scenario where basically the fundraising becoming super competitive. You're getting like multiple offers in parallel and everyone are feeling like, again, so we have this like huge thing. We want to be part of it. So we need to be more flexible in the value more flexible in the amount of money and so on and just like get into this group. So I think both of that, like getting the right messaging of basically the potential and then creating this scenario of like competitive fundraising, fear of missing out and so on, these are creating the right substance for effective fundraising. Very cool. I heard that somebody is trying to start FOMO capital, fear of missing up capital as a joke. So, you know, what do you think are the biggest bio startup killers or sandpit to avoid? Yeah. So first of all, I think these days, the right approach is to try to bring a platform that has multiple applications. So there are startups that are basically focusing on specific indications, specific intended use, with basically multi-year clinical trials of validating that specific indication. Always you have problems, always you have challenges, always you have like bad news and so on. If you're putting all of your eggs in one application, not necessarily you will survive these like periods of bad news. So having in a, a more diverse, like an investment, more diverse portfolio that can allow multiple different applications, a platform and so on, allow you to keep the momentum and keep the excitement even if there are challenges. So that's one thing. Second of all, again, and we are very 
focus on that. How can we break out from a very specific market? So not only targeting one market in the U.S. and worried about the specific competition and do we have enough marketing reps and so on in the U.S. and so on. How can we allow a platform that is global and can really compete in a global scale? And again, it's the same diversified perspective. So again, if you have a global scale, some place can run faster, some place can run slower. But again, you're like more diversified and more protected. That's great. So let's talk more about like science fiction, optimistic future, because there are a lot of hype right now about cellular therapies, immunotherapies. Do you think personally that cancer will be largely cured 30 years from now? Like, what's your opinion? So I think the aim is to make cancer a chronic disease, like diabetes, like diabetes. So basically, not necessarily cure, but basically keeping it under control for tens of years or basically the rest of your life. And again, the way to do it is to really move a lot of like the sophisticated machinery to the early stage. So some combination between cancer screening, detecting early, but then like also having the right clinical decision framework with uh, data-driven MRD moving. And this is a big effort that is being done in the pharma moving some of the immunotherapies and target therapies into the early stage and so on. And really attacking with a lot of force at the early stage. And basically, in some cases, maybe curing completely. In other cases, basically being able to maintain the cancer in, in a way that we control it. And again, if you are coming back to the iron dome analogy. So again, you can receive multiple attacks every day if you have the ability to monitor the intelligence, to monitor the ability to track and to intercept. So basically to expect what is going to be the next challenge and next revolution and to intercept it and to remove it and remove it and remove it. So at the end, you can make something to be more chronic, but to maintain quality of life. And again, not necessarily we see 100% cure, but 95% long-term survival and basically just like living with cancer, like AIDS and diabetes, I think that's the goal. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, it's funny, like some people are afraid of growing old and they don't like their birthday. I'm excited about the future. Like for me, birthday is the yay. I survived another year in my goal of living in the future because in the future, for example, we won't have to worry so much about cancer. So as we finish, if you could share some parting words of advice to other startup founders, like what would be the top three things you would tell them? Yeah. First of all, you need personal passion to what you're doing. So because there are always problems, you will always have a lot of rejection, a lot of failures, a lot of troubles. You need to be really, really, really passionate about what you're doing in order to basically survive all of these like downturns and so on. Second of all, diversified and really good founding team that are on one end diversified in experience, but also like good people that support each other. Again, there are a lot of challenges, a lot of problems. You need to surround yourself with good people in order to survive it. And the third thing is getting the right investors or advisors that did similar processes, similar journey before and can bring value, not necessarily money. And again, actually, Series A and Series B became so competitive that we can actually choose the investor that we want and really to try to bring the people that can bring the value, bring the expertise, bring the experience with similar journey, bring the network, open doors for us. And again, most of all, to be good people that we support like in problematic times. Oh, that's great. So let's end up with a quick fire round, some quick questions. So let's start. So who have been your biggest mentors or influencers? You have people like Joe Church that basically like really changed the world with a lot of like innovation, scientific discoveries that were translated to beautiful companies. Yeah. 
Perfect. Are there any books that stand out to you as life-changing that have influenced your path? Yeah. So actually, when I was cancer patient and I was like hospitalized more than two months before the surgery, I started, I actually don't remember the name of the book, but I started reading a book about biology that was written by physicists and trying to explain biology, cellular biology and so on from the physical perspective and control and molecular and what is cancer and so on. And again, this like beautiful perspective of like looking on biology as a machine, that was with all of the context of sitting in the hospital, with all of like the treatments and so on, like that really creates the motivation. Okay, this is something that I need to do. Right. What problem, other than what CTY is focused on, do you most wish someone else would tackle and solve? So I think two aspects are going to be very interesting. One is, in general, a data-driven clinical decision support. I think what we are seeing today, not only in cancer, in many different disciplines in healthcare, is that diagnosis is becoming more complex, but the time the clinician has to see the patient is actually decreased. So it's similar to the problem that the Air Force pilots had in the late 20th century, how to do the data integration and the decision. And we'll see more AI-based decision-making like in the medical setting. The second thing is using liquid biopsy as the car computer. Like basically, like really monitoring everything in your body, any tissue damage and chronic inflammation and so on, by just like taking simple blood tests and checking them. That's great. And Asaf, thank you so much for joining us. And really, it's been an inspiration to work with you and see you and the team in C2I you know, doing a dent in cancer and helping patients around the world. I expect great things from this company and huge impact on the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks. And feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast.